the records they had, and uh, I'd play them and scratch them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, play them over and over again. So that was something I, I grew up doing as a child. Um, what we listened to was, was Southern Gospel, and that was, that was where my interests were. That's what I grew up listening to. And so you um, got to go to a few concerts where you go to see how low the bass can go and how high the tenor can go, et cetera. And, you, and that's kind of the environment there. And, and you begin to idolize those men, those singers, a bit in your little, little boy world. Um, and kind of this, this thing, that the, one, a great thing to do in life would be travel around and sing with one of these quartets. But after high school, um, I was asked to teach school, and I went teaching school that fall, which, by the way, I wouldn't recommend that. Uh, I enjoy teaching, and I love to see young people teaching, but it's probably good to give yourself at least a year outside of school before you go back. But I entered a community that was a little bit more conservative in their musical ideals than, than what I was, and I knew that, so I tried to be careful. Um, but it, I was careful because I was trying to be respectful to the families that were there, not because I had any convictions for it necessarily, but I, I didn't want to offend anyone uh, um, of the parents and their families. I boarded with a family for five years where I was teaching that um, they had a son that was about my age, a little older than me, and we became good friends. But he had some strong beliefs about music, and we butted heads. So we had some lively discussions about music. Um, I would say they were mostly friendly, but, uh, but we didn't agree. My brother and I and two other brothers at church had started to do some singing in a quartet. And when you do that, you, you, are, you have to find something to emulate. You're going to pursue some kind of style. So we began this process of what are we, what are we going to listen to? What, are we, what kind of songs do we want to sing? So we kind of started with the a cappella Southern Gospel, which there is recordings of that. Uh, but that doesn't really quite fit our churches. It's pretty loud and et cetera. So that didn't quite work. So we moved towards uh, an acapella bluegrass. There's some bluegrass quartets out there. And that's a lot more mild and relaxed. Um, and kind of started to listen to that and trying to find our way there. But then that summer, the first sum, summer of 98, I went to Faith Builders. And that was the first time in my life that I was under someone who spent time on teaching us how to sing. How do we do this? What are the details? Um, how do we want to sing the text? How do we want to sing these songs? And it really clicked with me. And I got all ex excited, so I came home to my siblings, and of course, uh, as the oldest, you know how us oldest are, we kind of make things happen. And it kind of got them fired up, I guess you would say. And, and we started to pursue that world just a bit. Now, I go back to school in the fall. Or I'm not exactly sure the time frame here. And this friend I was just talking about had a set of tapes from Majesty Music, which is a very fundamental Baptist group in South Carolina, and a whole series of sermons. And I had not been ready for those sermons, but I was now. After my experience at Faith Builders and so on, okay, I'm ready to listen to these sermons. In those sermons, they played music, and it clicked. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So I, by the time I got through all of that, I had quite a collection of CDs. Uh, I don't know how many. I threw them all out. Almost all of them went. And I remember my students, I would, and I told my students about this, and, hey, 
give them to us. Don't throw them away. Don't throw them. I said, no. If I don't think I should be listening to them, I'm not going to pass them to you. But I was able to identify, as they played music, identify with the sounds and so on and techniques and say, you know what? I, I really, I, a lot of the music I have doesn't pass. Now, when you throw out music, what do you have to do? You've got to replace it with something. And that's another long journey then. What am I going to purchase to replace that? And we'll talk about that maybe a bit later. But this morning, you're in one of four positions in relation to music. Either you are listening to music that you wish you could bring into your church. Or you could pursue the music and lose what you believe. If I would have pursued that Southern Gospel world that I was so attached to, I knew I would have had to walk away from a belief system. There's no way I could have, I don't know if I'd have been good enough, but joined one of those, tried to join one of those quartets and, be, and remained a conservative Anabaptist and, and held to those truths. So I could have pursued my music that I was listening to at that point um, and walked away from a, a worldview. Or I could sit and be disgruntled, which is where I was to a point, and unhappy because my church music's boring and not what I liked. There's a fourth position, though, that I, I, Lord willing, I'm here this morning. Or I could move towards listening to a style of music that I can actively participate in and promote in my church. What I listen to, participating in, outside of church, I can also bring into church and promote here as part of what we do. And you're in one of those four positions this morning in relation to the music that you listen to. Verse in Isaiah, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. For, for sake of time, I'm not going to turn, but if you turn to Exodus 15, the song of Moses, the second verse, it says the same thing. It talks about the Lord being my song. The word song here and in Psalm 81 and, and in Exodus 15, verse 2, the original Hebrew is Zimrath. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's the original word. It's only used three times in the Bible. And it's an instrumental word. It only relates to the instrumentation. And Isaiah says, God is my song instrumentally. Um, Exodus, Moses, and the children of Israel said the same thing. And in Psalm 118, uh, King David, or Asaph, would have said the same thing. That God is my song on an instrumental level. So again, a question similar to what we were talking to about last night. Brother Floyd referenced it at the end. If we take away the lyrics from our music, is it still God's song? If someone from another country entered your house and could not understand English and you played some a cappella music, would they know, even though they couldn't understand it, would they know this is something God would have, that would be honoring God? Is it still the Lord's song? 2 Chronicles 29, And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David, king of Israel. The song of the Lord began with trumpets. 
was God's song with the trumpets. So what can we conclude? God is the source of our strength. God is the source of our salvation. God is also, should be, the source of our music. And if God is the source of our music, it puts some parameters into that. Our music should re- reference Him and His character. Uh, holiness, purity, righteousness, justice, order, etc. Are all things that should be reflected as best we can. And obviously this is all in the context of being human and doing a jo- our, uh, the best we can at honoring God through our music. And we can't do this perfectly because we're human. But an endeavor to have these things as part of the music that we sing and part of the music that we listen to. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Tool number four, our music, Christian music, should be distinct. Christian music should be distinct. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I guess we're going to take this just a little bit out of context. This is the chapter where Apostle Paul's uh, addressing tongues and so on. Um, and that's a big discussion in and of itself. But he does reference, some, he has some discussions about music here. Verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 14. And even things without life, giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle. Is there a difference between a pipe and a harp? A pipe, I'm, a, I'm, I'm going to say a, a wind instrument. Is there a difference? Yeah. Harps are very, very quiet and soft. Pipes, wind instruments, trumpets tend to be very loud and in your face a bit more. And Apostle Paul says, how are we going to know where the, whether a pipe is playing or whether a harp is playing unless there is a distinction in the sounds? Then he says in verse 8, For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? Even today in the U.S. military, what do they wake up to? Taps at 6 or 5, whatever, and you better be out of bed. Bang! But it's that trumpet in the morning that wakes everybody up. And they know what that means. Very distinct. There's no uncertainty there. They get up and prepare. As Christians, and especially as Anabaptists, we talk a lot about being separated uh, from the world. And that's good. But along with that is the idea of being separated unto God. The positive side of being separate from the world is the fact that I want to be separated to God. That should be the focus, not that way. Saying, I want to be separated unto God, whatever God wants for me. And if I do that, honestly, I will be separate from the world. The focus needs to be on that separation to God. And so our music should distinctly point us towards God. It should actually direct away from what the world sounds like, not pursue it. I remember, again, as a young person in that time frame, um, going to a Christian bookstore and walking up to the CD rack. So this is probably 2000 or so, a long time ago anymore. And right at the CD rack, they had a book. And I started paging through the book, and it said, if you like this secular artist, you will like this Christian one. And I remember one of the lady artists had talked about her having a smoky vocal. I'm not sure what was all what they meant by that. But they had a whole book, 
that said, if you like these secular artists, you will like these Christian ones. Now, was that based on the text or the sound? Based on the sound. And the world was establishing what the Christian music sounded like. It wasn't the other way around. So we had Christian pop and Christian funk and Christian rap and Christian this and that. The world comes up with rap music and then we Christianize it. But we follow the world in the sound. Do we do that with anything else? Ladies, are your dress patterns following the world or do we establish as a church how we dress? The world doesn't dictate that. But somehow music gets a pass. We don't do it with our language. Do you, you pursue, you somehow Christianize what, how the world talks? Or do we stay away from it? We establish from the Bible what, what a Christian should talk like and what a Christian should act like. But in the world of Christian music today, the sound is established first and then we follow after. Verse 15, if you're still there in 1 Corinthians 14, what is it then? He says, I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding also. I think that relates to the text, but I also think that relates to understanding what music is and what it can do for us, the power that's there. Christian music should be distinct. So some elements of good music. Go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 5, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is full of of good, solid examples of principled music. And here's one of those. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. And this is after the dedication, or this is the dedication of the temple. The children of Israel had spent a lot of time and a lot of energy putting this house of God together. And now it's time to invite the presence of God into this tabernacle, into the temple. Verse 13, 2 Chronicles 5. And it came to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound, to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endureth forever that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. The first element of good music is unity. It says here that the trumpeters and singers were as one. Now, according to the, uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, there may have been up to 200,000 singers and up to 120 Trumpets and 4,000 instrumentalists. Can you picture that? I can't. And I don't know who the director was. I would like to meet him. Because it says what? They all made what? One sound. Wouldn't that be fascinating? We look at a choir of 100 people, and that's pretty big. This could have been up to 200,000 singing and making one sound. A secular quote, he says this, he says, Now apart from the primitive driving rhythm that lifts the fur on your spine and starts your feet tapping in spite of yourself, what is the outstanding feature of any hot band? The answer is improvisation, spur of the moment, faking on the written melody and rhythm, making things up as you go along. Back to my roots, 
the Southern Gospel world, you go to, you go to, again, please, I'm not judging anybody, okay, not at all, but you go to a concert and you want to see how high the tenor can go or how low the bass can go, and I remember telling my dad that uh, the best men's chorus in all the world would be like four of these quartets together singing. That would just be the most fun, phenomenal men's choir. I heard it one time. It was really poor. You know why? Because they're used to singing a part by themselves, not blending in with other people. It really was very poor. It didn't sound good at all. Even the best quartet, and it was some of the best Southern Gospel quartets of the time. But it didn't sound good because they're used to singing by themselves. They weren't used to creating experience of unity in their singing, doing their own thing a bit and improvising and in that process entertaining uh, the audience. Another quote from a secular source, he says this, Music brings about similar physical responses in different people at the same time. It is able to draw groups together and create a sense of unity. Music has the effect of intensifying or underlining the emotion which a particular event calls forth by simultaneously coordinating the emotions of a group of people. We're about 45 minutes from Penn State. They can put 110,000 in there, maybe not quite. It's the second biggest stadium in the United States. 105, I won't say 105,000 people. If 90% of them are Penn State fans, and they decide to... Or how do you get all of them doing the same thing at the same time? Music. You get 90,000 people moving together with what? Music. That music simultaneously coordinates the emotions of the sports fan. Over 160,000. The fourth largest stadium in the world. And I think it's the second largest in the United States. But what pulls that all together? The music. Allows them to control what's happening. What do they call that? The wave. I don't even sure what all that means. But you get the wave going in the stadium with music. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. Now, we look at some of these Old Testament prophets and some of the writing abilities and the uh, wonderful literature that's found in some of these books. And it's actually one of the... Um, I think it's Jeremiah. Maybe, maybe some of these other Old Testament writers are studying secular college simply because of the literary value of this. So Isaiah 52, 7 to 9. Notice what it says. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break ye forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. And maybe this is speaking of the future, but notice the wording. He says, with the voice together shall they sing, because they're going to see eye to eye. There's powerful unity here, not only in singing, but in thought. They're going to agree and they're going to sing together. Go to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 12. Again, this may be speaking of the future, but think about the words. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord. 
for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flock and of the herd. And their soul shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow anymore at all. They shall flow together. Isn't that a fascinating word picture? And it's talking about singing. To reach this level of unity, we, in our churches, we need music to follow. Um, church music was and is being written to accent the message. Remember we talked last night about the music is a vehicle that's going to take the message one way or the other, and we want to take it in a godly direction. Um, I forgot to look this one up, but I would like to look at Hallelujah with a Savior. If we can find that in here quickly. Uh, Man of Sorrows with a name. If someone beats me to it, holler the number, please. Two seventy nine, and I want to spend some time. This, and we may sing this one later. I'm not sure, but let's look at the vehicle. Let's look at what the writer does. And P. P. Bliss wrote both the music and the text. It would be interesting to know if he wrote the words first or the music first. My guess is the words, but I don't know. What is the climax of two seventy nine? What is the climax of that song? Sure. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Does the music go up or down? Up. Look where bass is. You guys are way up on middle C. That's way, that's almost out of your range. That is in major power zone up there. Why? So we can sing it the way it's meant to be sung. If that line was way down and, and, and way down low, we couldn't give it the energy that it needs. If you look at the rest of the text, the first line tends to be sorrowful. Man of sorrows bearing shame. That's what the music is. And then we get to that second line and it, the answer is there. And the music picks up and climaxes at hallelujah. It's great. But without good music, that text probably wouldn't be here. But he wrote them both and he put them together. We need that kind of music to bring a spirit of unity in our singing. Brandon Mulladat, faith builder, said once that the more I think about the music, the more I think about the message of the song. I pondered that one for a while. I think what he's saying is that when you're caring about the music and following the notes, you are engaged. Maybe, and I've done this, you can be engaged in just the music and not thinking about the text. It's very easy to do. But you're still engaged in the music. If you're sitting here staring out the window, you're not engaged in the text. I know that. And obviously you're not engaged in the music either. It doesn't work that way. When I think about what I'm singing, that helps me think about what, where the song's going and what's there for us. Helps keep us focused on the song. What about personal unity? As a church, we need unity, especially in today's day and age. We're, told, we're called to unity. We believe very strongly in practicing what we preach. We believe that our Christianity uh, is a seven-day-a-week Christianity. It affects everything we do. In a lot of liberal churches today, I'm not judging, I'm just making a point, there's two services on a Sunday morning. Um, one's a traditional service, the other one's a contemporary service. What's the difference between the two services? One thing, the music. Usually the traditional service is first, because I don't know if our young folks like to get up early anymore. So usually the traditional service where they sing hymns is first, and the older folks are there. The second one tends to be the contemporary one where it's the praise and worship, etc. Does that bring unity to a congregation? 
when mom and dad and grandma and grandpa are there in the morning and the young folks come in the forenoon? Is there unity there? No. Music has divided them. Dividing the younger generation from the older generation. Even in the world, 80 to 90 years ago, the beginning of radio and you know the 20s and 30s, the bulk of the world... Listen to the same kind of music. Grandma and Grandpa and grand, the grandchildren sit around those big old radios of the 30s and they listen to the same stuff. We move into the 50s and the advent of rock and roll and we have this division of generations. We've got young folks with their record players in their bedrooms listening to Elvis and the Beatles and so on and mom and dad are pulling their hair out. They hate this stuff, so, but, but they can't stop their young people. This is, not in, this is in the world, not in the Christian circles. And, and they don't like this music, but... It's young people. What are you going to do with them? And they go upstairs and listen to their music. Mom and dad are distra- distraught with that. The, d- the generations were divided. But the same thing has happened in many churches today. Music has done the same thing. It's divided the generations. We're called to be a unified people. We're called to leave a uniform testimony to the world around us. What about on a personal level? What about personal unity? Consistency. We're expected as Christians to have unity between what we talk and what we walk. Ladies, I I see you wearing nice, modest dresses here this morning. If we would drive past your garden tomorrow, if you're cleaning up your garden for fall and it's warm enough, um, I would not expect to see you in a tank top and shorts, right? I would expect to see you in something that is unified with what you're wearing right now. It's going to be old. It might be stained. But it will be be unified. It will look the same as what you're wearing now. It's not different. So why then in music can we walk out the back door of our churches and listen to music in our cars and anymore in our headphones that has no resemblance whatsoever to what we're doing in here? We can do that six days out of the week, and then we can come back here and and endeavor to sing what we're singing here. And it's completely different. Is that unity? Tool number five, music should be in unity with the rest of our daily lives. We do it with everything else. Hopefully, we talk the same at work as we do here. We read the same. We evaluate. We may, not be, we may be reading a novel at home, but we still have principles that guide what we read, just like we have principles here. We dress the same, as I already mentioned. We have principles that affect how we dress here. We apply the same principles the rest of the week. We pray the same. We pray here and we pray at home. We're praying to God. It's, 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 it's all in unity. But somehow, music gets a pass. I'm going to play a couple examples this morning. Um, the first one is a very basic hymn. And this one has a soloist in it. He's not using a microphone. He's filling the, the church and just, he doesn't, he's not creating an experience that's inappropriate like we talked about last night. Very clear and open solo. Second song is just a basic hymn we sing in our churches. It's very solid. It's very unified. It flows well. The third one, then, is an instrumental piece. Remember, we talked about last night that the music 
is uh, the melody is the most important because it directly connects to the text. So as soon as this begins to play, you will hear the words in your head. You can't avoid it because you know the song. You can't. There's no way that you, if, maybe, maybe there's a chance some of you don't, but I, I think you do. You will hear those words because it is inextricably connected, even though this is an instrumental piece. Notice in the instrumental piece that the melody is dominant. It's forthright. It's where it belongs. The rhythm is down underneath. Remember, our heart stays where it belongs. It's down underneath supporting it, but it's not dominating the sound. We go back to 2 Chronicles, the second element. They were unified, one voice. They were unified in what? They were unified in praising and thanking God. There's a lot of people today that are unified in things. The Muslims are very unified, but they're unified in the wrong thing, right? You have to be unified in truth. And the children of Israel there were unified in praising and thanking God. The Back to the Bible radio broadcast, which I don't think they're on the radio anymore, um, this would have been in the 90s. And they mentioned this. And I don't know if they got in trouble for this statement or not, but they said this. The lyrics, which God honored in the Bible, were somewhat different from the average contemporary Christian song. They extolled the greatness of God and His mighty works. His glory was a central theme, and His praise was the aim. If one were to remove all the first and second personal pronouns from much of the contemporary Christian music, they would be humming most of the time. God said through Isaiah, I will not give my glory unto another. What are first and second personal pronouns? Students. I, me, we, us, mine, yours. Right? This man says, if you took all those words from a lot of this new music, there wouldn't be much left. It's a very man-centered music. If you go to the scriptures, as Brother Floyd said last night before we started, that the focus of the scriptures singing is God. 
and who he is. And we'll touch some more on that uh, this, um, on the next session. God wants us to be using our minds in meaningful praise, especially in our personal devotions and collective worship, that our minds are engaged and we're thinking about God. And music is very powerful in being able to do that for us or help us do that. Hebrews 13, By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. A sacrifice of praise. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. We need to do our best in Bible reading, study, prayer, etc. As well as music. We need to do our best. We need to put our best effort into singing and what God asks us to do because we do it with Bible reading, we do it with prayer, at least we try to. We need to do it with music as well. Men, we uh, do our best at secular trades. The Anabaptists are known for quality workmanship. We're known for honesty. And that's wonderful. It's the way it should be. So if, you, if you're a carpenter or a, a, woodsman, a woods craftsman and you built something that you knew was defective, you knew there was a major flaw in it, you could hide it, but you knew it was there, you would feel very guilty if you sold that as a product that was the best. Right? And you should. Because it's the best we can do. And if we do it in our secular trades, if we do it in our normal, everyday occupation, we need to do it in our spiritual lives. And in our worship. Men, we're to lead out in worship. You do not have any women preachers here. You don't have any women song leaders. And we like our ladies, okay? We couldn't do without you. Praise the Lord. But they don't lead out. I've been in some circles that if I would have instructed the ladies to quit singing halfway through verse 2, and, you didn't, and the men didn't know it, that if they would have all stopped at the same time, there would have been hardly anything left. If we're to lead out and worship men, we need to be singing, right? We're called to that. They're not, we're, we're to lead. Now, I know they sing the melody. That's right. But we can lead with enthusiasm and excitement. And again, somehow, music gets a pass. And I'm not sure why. Man, let's lead out in worship. Let's get excited about our singing. Let's get excited about our preaching. Let's get excited about our teaching. Let's get excited about our prayer, praying. All of that's part of our worship. And we're called to lead out in that. So this morning, as Christians, based on the fact that God commands us to sing. We are musicians in, in some shape or form. Um, maybe some of you play some instruments. Maybe some of you really know music well, and that's great. Some of you maybe not so much. But we're still called as Christians to be a part of singing and worship as best we can. So what should we be? Musicians that are, are empowered by God. What are some things, some uh, descriptions of that person? First of all, we're chosen. 1 Peter 2, 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Nehemiah. Now it came to pass when the wall was built, and I had set up the doors, and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed. Now I want you to notice the difference here. 
Nehemiah appointed the singers here uh, when he was bringing things back together. He appointed the singers. Who chose you this morning? Your preacher? No. God did, right? We are chosen through the Spirit of God to be all of these things. And what's the point of being a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people? To what? Show forth His praises. And that involves singing. It's much more than that, but it does involve our music. And your preacher or your teacher didn't pick you like this. God did. Much higher calling than the Old Testament. So as musicians, we are chosen. Secondly, we should be well organized. Corinthians, let all things be done decently and in order. Um, Again, to the Old Testament. Look look how they did things back then. And the priests waited on their offices, the Levites also with the instruments of music of the Lord, which David the king had made to praise the Lord, because his mercy endureth forever. When David praised by their ministry, and the priests sounded trumpets before them, and all Israel stood. This is a very organized worship service. God instilled that in them. God instructed them exactly how to worship Him, and they did it. It was very organized. We don't have that per se today, um, a bit, but we do have this commandment, that let all things be done decently and in order. We should be well organized. You have your song leaders. They take their places. We have songbooks that help us stay organized. And the list goes on. Thirdly, we should have some training. Now, don't throw me out yet. Okay? I'm not talking about going to college for four years. I'm simply talking about, I believe that everyone can learn enough to actively participate in congregational singing. My heart's cry is for our congregational singing, not necessarily our choirs and so on. They have their places. But right here, right now, is the most important time that we sing together. Choirs help us learn. Choirs uh, train us. Okay, so they have their place. But right here, every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night, you sing. We don't all have to be wonderful soloists. We don't all have to be marvelous song leaders. But you can still learn enough to know and participate in singing. We can participate in a sermon without being able to read. You could go to another country and lead someone to the Lord who can't read. But what's the very first thing you would do? Teach them to read. Why? So that they can read the scriptures for themselves. I think music is similar. You can enter in a bit without knowing anything. But why don't we teach it so that you can enter in better and participate more? So that the number of them with their brethren that were instructed in the songs of the Lord, even all that were cunning, those that were skillful, was 204 score and eight. Now this training... Primarily falls to the home and the school. Your ministry doesn't have time for this. Okay? Uh, So, homes, parents, and schools. If you're here as a teacher, it is our job to make sure that our people, our students, our children, have the ability and the knowledge to enter into singing. I'm passionate about Christian education as well, and and I, I ponder What do my students take with them to church every Sunday? 
their ability to read and analyze, which they learn very young. What else? Usually not algebra, usually not biology. Their knowledge of music comes to play every time they sit on the pews. And if they never learn it, probably for the rest of their lives, they will not be able to participate in singing like they could have if we had just taught them. That ability, great or small, comes here every time you gather. So music is one of the most important things our students bring from school. The third element of good music. We have unity, unity in praising and thanking God. And when those things happen, we have power. If you go there to 2 Chronicles, if you're still there, if you go back to that story, it says the house of God was filled, or the house, yeah, the house of God, the temple was filled with a cloud. Okay, the power of God came. It says the priest couldn't even stand up. So I'm assuming that... Um, these priests have been preparing for this for years, maybe. This time where they would be able to sit in the, in the house of God. But it says they couldn't even stand up because the power of God came in and filled that place. Second Chronicles 20 is where Jehoshaphat leads out against the Moabites. And he says, God, what do I do? God says, send some singers out. And he sends some singers out and the Moabites kill each other. Second Kings 3 is the story of Elijah. Uh, Jehoshaphat and Ahab come to Elijah and say, hey, we, we don't know what to do. The, the, I forget who the enemy was. It doesn't really matter. The enemy's after, out, after, out to get us. What do we do? And Elijah's pretty frustrated because Ahab was not following God. Jehoshaphat was in the middle somewhere. And Elijah says, well, because of you, I will see what God has to say. But he's angry. It says there that they had to bring a minstrel to play Elisha some music. Once the music calmed him down, he could hear the word of God. He heard from God and then he communicated that to Ahab and uh, Jehoshaphat. But he needed to calm down. And how'd they do it? With the power of music. The music, the church needs music. This is from the book Music and the Balance. This is from Majesty Music. Um, so a fundamental Baptist approach here. The church needs music which draws men to men to the Savior through conviction and lifts Him up rather than music which pulls the Lord down to man's level and points to the wicked devices and idolatry of the world. When the purpose of our music is to praise and glorify the Lord and faithfulness to His Word, the Holy Spirit could then use such music to bring men and women to Christ. Music is a cycle. Music's a cycle. If it's not encouraged when children are young, our children will go elsewhere to find life in their music. They, they want music that has life in it. So they're going to go somewhere that has life. And often that music is artificial, it's artificial life. It's got a lot of rhythm. It's got a lot of energy. At least it feels that way. And they begin to listen to that because it has life. And once they develop a taste for that, it's very, very, very difficult to go back on a Sunday morning and sing our hymns and actually enjoy it. We need, as a church, as homes, as schools, to encourage lively singing when they're little so they appreciate that and they develop a taste for it when they're little so that they're not so tempted with all this other stuff that's out there. And then they can come back to church on a Sunday morning and actively participate in our singing and enjoy it. 
and not feel like this is really boring. We'll take a break, but I will play these four examples. Um, Just some nice pieces of music, some hymns, a children's song, um, a spiritual. I like spirituals as a teacher. um, Negro spirituals, uh, there's a lot of history to them, and I appreciate them. Uh, for one, one primary reason is they don't usually sing. I don't know if I've ever heard a Negro spiritual that sings bad about their masters. They're singing about what? Going to heaven, right? We're getting out of this place. The focus is, is God and going to heaven, getting on the train, whatever, the chariot, etc. And so spirituals bring an element, especially to school, uh, of energy and liveliness, a little more rhythm in a spiritual than a lot of other pieces, and that's great. So it's really nice to have, to have that available to us. The last one, then, is another instrumental piece that, again, you will, I guarantee you, you will hear the words in your head because you cannot disconnect this melody from the text. It's impossible. For example. Take a break. Over this, yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 